we live in safe times. Very safe times. Uh, just take a look at medical advancements. You know, 150 years ago, if someone were to come down with a fever, if a, if a child were to come down with a fever 150 years ago, parents would have been quite nervous because children used to die from fevers. People used to die from ordinary uh, illnesses that we have today. But now, if you get a fever or you get ill or something happens, even when you have deadly diseases, even those that are incurable, we have impeccable treatments for even things like for cancer. Even though things like cancer, it's really hard to dull in that. Um, but at the same time, we have incredible knowledge in the anatomy of, of humans. We're able to do some miraculous things, things we would have never been able to conceive of. Uh, for, in, for instance, laser eye surgery. Who here has ever had that done? Yeah, there, there's a few people who've had that done. That is just, if you were to go up to someone 50 years ago and say that, w- that would be possible, they would have been like, what? That's incredible. We live in times where if you could get sick at any time in, in the, the period of human history, now would be a good time to get sick because of all of the different things that we have at our disposal. Uh, even crime rates. Um, we often see American news because we're so close to the United States. When I lived in Manitoba, there was not nearly the amount of crime that reached the news as it does here. Here, the uh, United States loves to dramatize everything. You know, oh, did you hear about this grandma lost her penny? What is she going to do without that penny? You know, and they like to dramatize. So they say, statistics show that 2% of all crimes are violent or homicides. 2%. However, it makes 40% of the American uh, news. And so, oftentimes, it seems as though things are going bad. And sometimes when we talk about some things that happen, oh boy, Jesus is going to come back soon. It's very easy to, you know, oh wow, it's just getting so bad. Actually, if you take a look back, th- this is a pretty good place. I know there are anomalies to what I'm saying. I know that there's school shootings. I know these things. Are, a lot of times, those are isolated, horrific incidents. But when you consider the large scale... I think it's, uh, it's, it's not as bad as it used to be. Um, even schools. Did you know that it's forbidden for a child to make physical contact with another child? Uh, when I was in school, we used to play tackle football. And, uh, you know, we came out of that okay for the most part. You know, uh, even when you look at the playgrounds. You know, I've got two little girls. So when we go to the playground, I'm looking at the playground. I'm like, wow, this blows. You know, when I was a kid... We had teeter-totters, you know, or as we would call them, catapults, you know. We had merry-go-rounds, you know. It went to, you know, the, uh, the beach there by, by Frankie's on, on Peely, uh, Point Peely Drive and Mercia Park. And they got rid of their, I remember as a kid, that was my favorite thing in the whole world. You know, you would launch each other at dangerous speeds and you'd be dizzy for like 20 minutes. And we turned out okay. But... Because of safety regulations, because some child gets hurt, you know, and, and you know, I'm all about being safe and stuff like that. They've, they've gotten rid of it. And so, and so they, they've, they've created a, a world where it's just absolutely safe. And they're still making changes to continue to make it safe. And the more you look at it, the more you've got to think to yourself, we're like this close to sending our kids to school bubble-wrapped. Maybe one day we will. Who knows, right? But if this keeps continuing like this, it is safe. Okay? I think I've proven my point. It's safe to say it's safe now. So, how does a safe society worship a dangerous God? 
Because God, in its entirety, if you look at scriptures, safety isn't really his prerequisite. He's not really, it's not, I don't think he is a fan of being dumb and going evangelizing on rooftops or something like that. But I think that God, throughout the scriptures, you see God calling various people out into dangerous scenarios, dangerous parts of the world. Thank the Lord for people who are able to be dangerous. Because there are people right now, as we speak, a part of the underground church in, in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, a lot of these Muslim, um, Muslim countries. Um, on the cover of your bulletin, you see a really epic picture of a, of a man with shopping bags who stood in front of a fleet of tanks in 19, I believe it was 1988, during, uh, at the Tiananmen Square, where years before there was a big massacre People were picketing. They wanted to be able to be Christians. They wanted to be able to have a democracy. They wanted to have human rights. And as a result, the Chinese government decided to bring out the military and obliterate them. Years later, the young people of our generation in China stood up again. And they decided to bring the news crews with them. So they brought the news crews out there. And again, they started picketing. Well, the Chinese government was like, we got to take care of this problem. Let's do it again. Send them more military. We're going to send them another message. Got to beat them down. But then it came to their knowledge that there were news crews. What happens when there's news crews? They broadcast it, and the whole world sees what happens there. And if the whole world sees what happens there, maybe other countries will take action. And that could be a big problem for China. These people had courage. They stood out. And then a fleet of tanks came down the streets. And you could still hear the rumble. When my wife went to China, she says she could still see the track marks of the tanks in Tiananmen Square Garden. So once again, the tanks are coming down that road. One man stepped out of the crowd and walked right in front of that tank. I don't know what he's got in those grocery bags. Maybe he's got like bread or sandwiches. Probably wasn't thinking about doing this today, but he's like, no, not again. And he stood in front of those tanks. Those tank drivers had specific instructions at this point not to kill anybody because they were taking pictures, as you can see on your bulletin. Well, the tanks had to stop. And he stood. One man. Those tanks could easily obliterate him, but he decided to stop. Tanks all backed up, tried to get around him. He wouldn't let him pass. They didn't know what to do. What type of courage does it take to be there, to do that type of thing? God calls us into areas where sometimes it's not going to be safe. But we are addicted to safety. And I'm not against safety, and I really want to highlight that. I'm not saying that we should just be dangerous and whatever, and maybe there's really good causes for getting rid of the teeter-totters, but in my time, they were a lot of fun. But I recognize that, again, like when I look at scriptures, I don't necessarily see safety being a huge issue. God's love compels us. It drives us to the dark corners of this world to make a difference. If all the Christians in the world decided to be safe, what would happen? There'd be huge implications to that. We'd be leaving those churches and those areas that, that desperately need God. Thank the Lord for missionaries who decided to live a dangerous Christ-like life, love, life. God's love compels us. God calls us to make the tough choices, even when it means sacrifice. And I know that's not easy. But because we live in a safe community, it's difficult for us to wrap our head around this. And I understand that. But, but I think the more information, the more knowledge we get from scriptures, the better picture we can formulate in our mind of what it would look like. In Exodus chapter 3, 10, Moses comes head to head with God. 
Moses had left Egypt. He had huge, he was royal there. And, and, and he ended up committing murder. He lost his temper. He escaped, went into the wilderness, found this amazing community, got married, had a great life there. And all of a sudden, God comes head to head with him and he says, you know what? I want you to go back. This is what he says to him. Come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And if you don't quite understand what's going on here, Egypt has an incredible amount of, of people, Hebrews, okay? God's people. And they're slaves. And God wants them to leave Egypt out of slavery and bring them to the promised land he had promised them. This is a daunting thing. This isn't just like, hey, could you please talk to that man in the corner? He needs some. No, it's like, can you take out this many people um, out of Egypt? Doesn't get more dangerous than that. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And I had to highlight that. What better reason do you need to do something dangerous? God is with you. He created the, the electrons. He gave them the path to go around the nucleus and the atom. He, he created, he sustains the order in our universe. Uh, he, he created everything. And God is saying, the very God who did all these things is saying, hey, don't worry, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. So the fact that God is going with them is a sign that he has sent them. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. God even planned the after party. Like, Moses is having a hard time. Oh, how am I going to do this? I'm not even a good speaker. I don't look as good as Barack Obama or am as convincing as him. How is this going to happen? You know, and, and God, is, God is like, yeah, and after you do it... Um, we're going to have, like, a group of people. We're going to have a get-together here, you know, a little, you know, family gathering. And that's how optimistic God is. God goes with you. He's not like a conniving child who dares another child to run across the ice to see if it's safe to skate. I remember when I was a kid, we had that friend where we weren't quite sure if the ice was quite thick enough. So would be like, hey, Corny, run across. Let's see what happens. And Corny did. Unfortunately, that day it was not quite safe. We did not go skating. He didn't fall in all the way, but he had some soakers. Okay, we, uh, <clears throat> we can also consider Jesus Christ. We always need to consider Jesus. Jesus sort of the glasses we need to see life. We need to see the Old Testament. We need to see everything through the lens of Jesus. Matthew 16, 24, he says, if, any would, if, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And at this time, in Matthew, if he, he's walking around. There's a lot of people. You know, as a pastor, when you're up here, nothing thrills you more to see, like, people crowding in here and just everyone's just, you know, scrunching in. It's like, all right, more people are going to hear the word of God. More people are going to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that is our prayer. That is our wish. But Jesus, he looks around. He sees a huge crowd. He's like, ah, yeah, I don't know if all of you should be here. Some of you are here just for entertainment. You realize what this is, like, if you follow me, like, you have to take up your cross and then follow me. It's like, whoa. Everyone knew what the cross meant. That was humiliating, right? 
I'm thrilled to talk about Esther today. I, I read through Esther a few times for this, and, and, I, and I knew Esther from like a sort of a vague perspective because I've read it in the past. But when I read it, it was just such a breath of fresh air, a beautiful picture of, of God's provision and, and what it looks like to have courage in certain scenarios. But there, I want to explain some really interesting facts about Esther. Get this. The author nowhere in this book, in the Bible, actually refers to God. Nowhere. Okay? Nor does it mention Abraham, the covenant, um, prayer, and the Davidic kingship. Doesn't, doesn't say it. She's never quoted in the New Testament and is the only Old Testament book that is not uh, present in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they discovered, I believe, in 1946. The power of the message is subtle, but it's powerful. We see here that there's a larger power at work in this story, and we have to understand that. We see that there is, uh, yeah, God is the main character um, at work in this book, but sometimes it's hard to, hard to see how that works. God is, and the author wants to demonstrate that even where God is not apparent, he is at work on behalf of his people. Now, I think that's very important because how often do we go to work? We may get fired up of going to ladies' retreat, whether we go to, you know, YS, whether we go to Catalyst, Passion, we, or, or church, and, and we go back to our workplace, and we're looking at our cubicle, or looking at the inside of the cab of our truck, or looking at our workstation by the press break, and it's hard to see God present in those areas when everyday life hits you, Right? But I like Esther because in everyday situations, God is present. God is working. And it's a beautiful reminder of that. Worshiping Yahweh, worshiping God, was a problem in Persia, which is where this book of Esther takes place. Okay? See, after Egypt, after Moses led them out of Egypt, wandering for 40 uh, years ended up in the promised land. But as soon as they got to the promised land, this is a little bit of recap, they kicked back, relaxed, started worshiping other gods, got lazy, but then all of a sudden other countries, the Amalekites came in and started attacking them, trying to take them over, and immediately they became very, you know, faithful again, started praying out, God, please save us from these people. And then God sends them a judge. Judge, you know, empowers them to defeat them. Okay, they're safe again. Then they kick back in the lazy boy again and start getting lazy, worshiping other people, uh, uh, other gods, uh, Baal, and then all of a sudden the same thing happens again. And this happens over and over, and God keeps sending judges until one time God just stops sending judges. And then, exile. God's people got kicked out of their own country. The country flowing of milk and honey. The unthinkable. And now they're in exile. Babylon came in, they got them. Uh, that's a very uh, nutshell version of it. It's a little bit more complicated, but, but that is, in a nutshell, what happened. And amidst exile, God is made big. God is exalted. Sometimes we're terrified um, of, well, what will happen if, if this and this thing? What if our country gets taken over? What will happen is, if you look at Scripture, God is able to work. God is able to use those things to, to be glorified. And so you, you see stories like Daniel in the lion's den. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You get those amazing stories. These are all in the context of being in exile, out of their home. And they're glorifying God. They're changing things. 
They're throwing wrenches in political machines. They're changing things. They're, they're, they're blessing even the people who took them out of their, their country. And this, is, this has got powerful implications to, to, to our everyday life. Okay, so let's get some context here. Israel is in exile, like I just said. And the king is Xerxes. Xerxes is a very, very powerful man. He is in charge of 127 different provinces. Okay? And he's humiliated during a seven-day party in which his queen, Queen Vashti, uh, was supposed to... He summoned her to come out. <laughs> Apparently, she didn't have Mennonite parents, or they were very cruel, because uh, naming a kid Vashti probably wouldn't do so well in today's society. I only say it because I look around at some smiling faces, and I'm like, oh, I know what you're thinking. Um, anyways, yes, her name is Queen Vashti. Um, so anyways... So he summoned her, came in uh, to come in with, uh, and show her off. Because, you know, he probably got done showing off his Lamborghinis and his, you know, Batman paraphernalia. I don't know. He's showing off all the things that he's got, how beautiful of a palace he's got. And so now he wants to show off his pride, you know, his, his woman, you know. So he sends for her. And Queen Vashti was like, well, I'm not just an object. No. And so then the, the poor guy, the eunuch, had to go up to the king and be like, he, the king's like, okay, what's going on? I, I envisioned this in my head. She said no, which would have been a big deal. If, you know, it wasn't just like a family gathering. If this would have gotten out, you know, there's some powerful people here. This would have gotten out. People in the empire would have found out that, wow, if the queen can do that to the king, I'm not going to take this for my husband. And it would have, in their mind, caused big problems. Okay, so then they put their heads together. What are we going to do about this? We're humiliated. And so they came up with a plan. Gather together all the beautiful young virgins of the land, and what you do is you uh, put them through beauty treatments, and then we pick out a new queen, and then Vashti is no longer part of the picture. King Xerxes was like, well, hey, sounds good to me. And so that's what they did. And one of those women happened to be Hadassah or otherwise known as Esther. She was a Jew. She was one of God's people who was in exile, and her older cousin, Mordecai, had to raise her because she didn't have parents. And so I look at this relationship between them, and I'm, I admire it because I see such beautiful mentorship happening here. And, and so what happens is... Uh, so Esther is part of the, the, the young virgins that was chosen. She was very beautiful. And then she went, and this is another really cool point that I found in there. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I found it really intriguing, that they had to go through 12 months of beauty treatments in order to uh, present themselves to the king. And I'm thinking, what do you need to do for 12 months? But apparently they needed 12 months to do beauty treatments. Anyways, she, she gets presented to the queen, I mean, King uh, Xerxes, at which point, the king falls in love with her, and boom, she's made queen. However, Queen Esther had a secret. And her secret was that she was a Jew. Mordecai had asked her to keep that a secret, and that'll play out in the end. And I love the way this story is like gathering up all this information. You know something's going to give, something's going to explode 
when, when it comes down to it. But it's not yet. All, you, all we know is it's a secret. Don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to work its way out. Okay? And so, Mordecai came to the knowledge. And Mordecai, at this point, he's always walking back and forth like a really good father. Uh, trying to, like, get some more information about what's going on with his, uh, uh, with his younger cousin and his, uh, uh, the eunuchs will come out and explain to her, yep, she's doing good. She's just going through beauty treatments. She's learning the rules of the palace. And then Mordecai, okay, good. You know, and, and just stuff he can pray for and stuff. But eventually, at some point, he comes to some very secretive knowledge. And that is that an assassination plan was unfolding to kill King Xerxes by his own guards. This is very key. Now Mordecai has to make a decision. He is, take a step back, take a look at it. He is in exile. He's taken out of the promised land. You know, I guess you could say that King Xerxes is the enemy because he's the leader. So maybe he should just allow it to happen. Maybe somebody else will go into power and then maybe allow them to go back. Who knows? But, you know, maybe in our North American mindset, you know, it's like, Take out those enemies, those terrorists, you know, first thing you got to do, you know. So we have this mentality, maybe that would have been a good thing, but he doesn't. Instead, he does the opposite. He actually sends word to the king, warning him, look out, just want to let you know, these guards here are planning an assassination. Sure enough, they looked into it, and it was true. King Xerxes had a right-hand man, Haman. Haman was higher than all the nobles. And he's a very pivotal character here. He had, he was a celebrity, and he loved it. He loved the red carpet being rolled out. And King Xerxes liked him. I don't know, maybe he told very good jokes, but for some reason, he liked him. And so he, he uh, even made everyone, made a rule that everyone, when they see Haman, they're supposed to bow, right? However, this is a problem for Christians. And we see that also in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we only bow to God. We only submit to God and God alone. So Mordecai presented himself, but because, you know, I'm sure um, Mordecai is around the, the, the gate a lot, you know, Haman comes out and he doesn't bow, which makes him furious. And once he comes to the knowledge that the reason why he didn't bow is because he was a Jew and, and Jews only bow down to God, it, it just drove him over the edge, so over the edge that at that point, he decides to do something unthinkable. Instead of just having this man assassinated, he decides to make a plan to kill all of his people. All of them. So, he presents himself to uh, King Xerxes and makes a very good case for this. Says, well, these people are not listening to rules, and they're rebellious, and I think we should control it by annihilating them. And King Xerxes is like, that's logical, that's calculated. Do it. Here's my ring. Sign the edict. And then they sent out the thing, you know, in 12 months or whatever time frame it was. At this time, all the Jews will be obliterated. Well, this news reached Mordecai that Haman had done that. And it utterly crushed him. How would you feel if you found out that all of your family was to be obliterated because of a God decision that you made. So he tore his clothes, put on ash, and mourned outside of the palace gates. And when this reached Esther, Esther was 
just heartbroken. She wanted to know why. And so then, we're going to jump into Scripture right now with our feet already moving, and we're going to see how this story unfolds at this point. Excuse me. In Esther chapter 4, verse 6 to 15. So Havoc went out to Mordecai. And Havoc is uh, just uh, one of the king's eunuchs that was uh, there to take care of um, the, the, the women. In the open square, so Havoc went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. Um, And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Havoc went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And I can think in this time, Esther is thinking, well, it's so easy for him to live outside of the walls and say something like that. It's so easy. He doesn't understand what it's like in here, the pressure. That's what I can imagine her, because then she says, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that if any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. That is, that they be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was even called to see the king. Those are fantastic reasons to not go in before the king. At least I think so. I would probably use those exact same ones. Esther is starting to think that she is old news for the king. He hasn't even, he hasn't even texted her in 30 days. What's going on? You know, you can't just walk into his man cave with all the other guys. Because if you do that, there's a law. You're dead. So she's already thinking, I'm already probably not, you know, maybe I'm old news already. I don't know. He, He's the, he's the guy. He's the man. So it doesn't look too good for me. You want me to die? You want to be responsible for it? You know, she's like, oh my goodness. And there's a lot going through her head. So this is what happens. After Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise in another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Wow. She was told. A lot of times, it's so easy to say, oh, Queen Esther, she's she's the heroine. She's the hero of it. She was this iron woman. Not really. I see a very human person. I see a person with the same struggles I would have. She looked at her life. Wow, I went from... A nobody to somebody, and now I gotta give it up. Like, that would be hard. She looks at her position. Oh, you look at this, and, and for if you remain silent, isn't silence sometimes our greatest enemy? Sometimes they say the worst thing in this world is when a good person does nothing, when there's turmoil, when there's genocide, the tragedy and genocide that still happens to this day 
is when good people, when good Christians do nothing and they sit around and allow things like the sex trade to happen. Slavery. There's more slaves now than there have ever been in human history. We look back, oh yeah, it was so terrible when you know, we used to gather all the Africans and put them into inhumane uh, cabins in the ship and bring them over. Oh, what a terrible time. Well, that time is worse now. And the worst thing we could do as Christians is do nothing. Silence. What an enemy. So he's attacking silence. If you do nothing, are you sure you want to do that? And then he says something interesting. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Whether you do nothing, God is still going to be glorified. Jesus is still going to return. Justice is still going to happen. The question you have to ask yourself is, don't you want to be part of that big picture? Yesterday, I I had the pleasure of um, playing drums, um, recording drums in Toronto with uh, my friend, uh, his name is also Pete Clausen, and... and, uh, and I was asked by Will to, to help play for it. And I had a fantastic time. Spent a whole day just recording drum tracks and cheesy clap noises and shakers. And t- I was in heaven on earth. There's such a thing. It was fantastic. And, and I knew when he asked me that if I say no, so he's going to get somebody else. I better grab that before he asks Paul, right? If, if he doesn't ask me, he's going to grab another drummer. You know, God is all calling us to obedience, to courage. If we don't do it, don't kid yourself. God doesn't need us, but he wants us, and he's calling you to do it. The question is, are we, are, we, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to make those tough choices? Well, I'm not going to exactly go through all the rest of the story, but what happens is Queen Esther does exactly that. She, uh, I'll, I'll read the, oh, I also have to touch on this last thing. The, the end of that scripture is beautiful. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Think of that. Think of that beautiful encouragement. You know what that tells me when I read something like that? That tells me that you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. God could have made you into a single-celled organism. He could have made you into a molecule that helps make up this pulpit. He could have made you into a grain of sand. He could have made you into a goat, which would have been a step up from a grain of sand. But he didn't. He decided to, at some point, create you as a human being, a person with choice, a person who is able to commune with God. What an honor. And how often do we go through life without even thinking about that? We have beaten all odds. Think of the odds of that. Of all the things, all the molecules, all the atoms in the universe, and God somehow decides to make you into a human being. You are not a mistake, and you have the stuff. You have the stuff to make the difference. Then, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And I love this epic phrase. She says, and if I perish... I perish. If I perish, I perish. How cool would it be to get to that point in your relationship with God where suddenly you see a need? You know know what? I know if I talk to this kid in the corner, I may not be the coolest kid in the class anymore, but hey, if I'm not popular anymore, I'm not popular anymore. Oh man, if, uh, if I pull my boss up on this, he's doing jobs underneath the table here. 
If I pull them up on it, I may not have a job, but if I don't have a job, I don't have a job. Oh, man, I'm running a business right now. I'm a Christian, and to be, have integrity in the business world nowadays is virtually impossible, but if I lose it, then I'll lose it. Oh. When you take this story and you give it context to us, wow, what a beautiful three-dimensional picture of God at work and the calling that God has in our lives. Well, Esther spoke to the king, blasted in there, and the king was actually pleased to see her. And he, and he held out the scepter. She touched the scepter, called on a banquet. They had a banquet, at which point she calls Haman out on the sin. And, and she says in a very epic phrase, and he says, What can I do for you, Queen Esther? You're my woman. I'll, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And she responds by saying, Spare me my life. Which probably would have blown him off the chair. <laughs> I just got done telling you you could have half my kingdom. You want me to not kill you? Of course I'm not going to kill you. And she says, well, the edict you just signed says otherwise. Which would have blown him away. And, and at which point he says, who is responsible for this? Haman. This vile man, Haman, is responsible. He, he got justice for what he did. And, and Mordecai ended up taking his position as being the right-hand man because it because of not only the assassination attempt that he ended up getting, but he, he became knowledgeable of all the things that were going on. And, and it ended with God's people flourishing. Ended up with God's people being okay. They weren't annihilated. Courage. What is courage? The ability to do something that frightens one. What frightens you? What frightens you? Is it speaking in front of People, is it missions? Is it being a witness at work? Losing your job? One of the things that frightens me huge is going on trips because I'm not necessarily a handyman. <laughs> my biggest fear is that something happens in my van. That's one of my fears, right? Because I'm not your average Tim Taylor. So what frightens you? The scary thing is, when you pray for courage, God doesn't just say, yeah, I got some courage right here. I'm going to give you courage. When you pray for courage, you know what God does? God puts you in a position to be courageous. So pray that prayer with caution. Don't take it lightly, because God doesn't. There's a story that I heard, and there's a lot of variations of this story, but either way you look at it, it's a beautiful picture of courage. There's a little boy who had a, a sister, and some versions of us say she had leukemia. Some say there was just some other illness. And uh, the boy had had this illness earlier, at which point he was healed. And so his blood was the key to her, to, to healing her. So they had to do a blood transfusion. And they explained to her this. And they said, we, we and it was a little five-year-old boy. And, he, and they're like, we need to take some of your, we need to take your blood and give it to your sister so that she can live. And then once we do that, she will be better. Do you want to do this? And the little boy sat there and he thought for a little bit. Yes. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he thought a little bit too hard for that. Like, to them, it was no big deal. It was, uh, I'm just going to take some blood. Anyways, so they put the needle in him and they're extracting some blood. So they give it to the, to the sister and everything like that. And during that process, the little boy looks up at the doctor and then he, then he asked the doctor, So when do I die? 
doctor realized at that point that they hadn't, they've done this procedure so often they didn't think to explain to the boy they didn't need to take all of his blood. They just needed a sample of it. But in this boy's mind, he's like, I'm going to save my sister. That's the type of courage that I pray that God would instill inside of me. The beautiful thing about it is that I keep going back to Moses. When Moses goes through his struggle of whether or not he's going to go lead these people out of Egypt, God reassures him, God will be with you. And if you're here and you're like, oh, man, I, gotta, I already know some things in my life i got to be courageous about, and it's not going to be easy. No, it's not going to be easy, but if I could encourage you with one thing, and that is knowing that God, God is with you. The very being, the very element of love that sent his one and only son is with you. He could be in heaven instructing you, and we, we, we would still have to do it, but, but this God, the God of all gods, says, I will be with you. That, to me, I don't know what it does to you, but to me, that's reassuring. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for being incarnate. Thank you so much for breaking into our world, ripping into our lives, and walking alongside us. So many other religions are religions of just tyranny where a God is in heaven and he's, and he's putting all these crazy expectations and the only thing you want of us is our heart. The most fortressed, uh, the most guarded element of our lives, our heart, God. That's all that you ask. And Lord, we just pray that you would take that and that you would summon our heart, that you would draw it close to you, Lord God. And that through that process through this love relationship that we have, Lord, that you would just instill in us the inspiration to be dangerous, to, be, to, to go out and not fear man, not fear consequences, but God, but to know that you are there with us. And Lord, as we go from here, we just pray that you, would, that you would continue drawing us closer to you, that we could continue seeing what courageous love looks like. In your name we pray.